Fasting is nothing more than giving something up, uh, most commonly food, but giving something up for a specific period of time. And what the person asks is, what are the guidelines for that? How does God lead in a fast? How are we supposed to do that? And so what I gave you tonight is just nine principles of fasting that you can look at. Hopefully this will encourage you to maybe do a little more study on your own. So I'm going to look at these nine principles first, and then we'll get into our study in the book of James after we finish this. So go to Matthew chapter 6, if you would. Matthew chapter 6. I'm not going to have you look at all these scriptures tonight, but I'm going to have you look at a couple just to reinforce a couple of points we're going to look at. The first point on your sheet is simply this. Fasting is biblical. Fasting is biblical. We're not going to look at all the references tonight, like I say, but I do want you to look at Matthew chapter 6. and Look at verse 16. This is Jesus Christ speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says in verse 16, Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anointeth thy head and wash thy face. So Jesus Christ talks here about fasting. At the early church in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, the Bible says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost says, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. Uh, the early church fasted. Uh, Daniel fasted in Daniel chapter 1 and also in Daniel chapter 10. Esther fasted in uh, Esther chapter 4 and verse 16. So the only point here, that first point is simply this. Fasting is a biblical concept. It is found Amen. throughout both New Testament and Old Testament in the Word of God. Amen. Number two, fasting is always voluntary. Fasting is always voluntary. There is no place in the Word of God where we are commanded to fast. Uh, God tells us the benefits of fasting. He tells us the purpose for doing it. But nowhere are we commanded to do it. However, you're there in Matthew chapter 6. Look again, if you would, at verse 16. Jesus Christ says, when you fast. Verse 17, when thou fastest. Uh, Jesus assumed we would fast. He assumed that would be part of what we do, but nowhere does he command us to do that. Now, if we choose not to fast, it may reduce our effectiveness spiritually, which then may put us outside the will of God, and then it becomes sin. But specifically choosing not to fast does not put us outside of God's will, because we don't have anything in the Scripture specifically telling us that we are commanded to fast. That's our second point. Number three, fasting fulfills several purposes. Again, I'm not going to look at all these scriptures tonight. That's something you can do on your own time. But what I've listed for you there on your outline is several different reasons to fast, several purposes that are uh, performed by fasting. Uh, It'll help us strengthen our prayer life. It'll increase our ability to uh, seek God's guidance. It's a tool that we can use to express grief in that time. It's useful in helping us find God's deliverance and protection. It's a means of, of expressing repentance and returning to God. It can express express humbleness toward God. It can be a way for us to express concern for the work of God. It can be used to help uh, minister to the needs of others. It can be a way to overcome temptation and increase our dedication to God. It can also be a way to express love and worship to God. So those are all purposes that are found in the Word of God as to why we should fast. Overall, what fasting does is it shows us, shows God rather, how serious we are in seeking His direction in whatever it is that we're facing. It shows God how committed we are to finding an answer from him to that particular concern. It also gets our focus off ourselves and our needs and puts our focus on the worship of God and solely places our focus on him. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3, if you would. Philippians chapter 3. When you get to look at verse 18, Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. Philippians 3, 18 For many walk, for whom I told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, 
whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. He's talking there about those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, and one of the, uh, the characteristics of them, their God is their belly. In other words, they are concerned about their fleshly needs only. That's all that concerns them, is the needs and desires of the flesh. Their bellies is how Paul put that. What fasting does, it refocuses not on our physical need, rather it refocuses on our spiritual need, on godly needs, and on godly purposes instead. That's number three. Number four, uh, fasting and prayer go hand in hand. Uh, scripture is very clear in telling us that fasting is a way to enhance our prayer lives, primarily because, again, it refocuses us on the spiritual. David said this in Psalm 35, verse 13, I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned into my own bosom. When the disciples had difficulty casting out a devil, Jesus Christ told them in Matthew 17 and verse 21, This kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Paul refers to the marriage relationship in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, and he said, Defraud you not one, another, one, the other, one the other, except to be for consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempts you not for incontinency. So again, fasting and prayer, prayer and fasting, they're coupled together in several places in the Word of God. What that tells us is we can make our prayer lives more effective as we couple fasting to it. And in fact, fasting must be coupled with prayer if we choose to fast. That is part of what goes along with any kind of a fast that we do. Uh, number five, fasting does not necessarily have to involve the abstinence from food. Uh, for example, the scripture tells us that I just read to you in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, it's a reference to abstaining from the physical relationship in a marriage for a period of time to draw closer to the Lord, uh, not uh, avoiding food, but avoiding something else instead. I had one, read one author who said this, fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which, which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. So anything you choose to fast from is legitimate if you're doing that for the specific purpose of drawing co closer to the Lord or finding, uh, seeking his face or his guidance on some particular issue. So you can fast from any regular enjoyment. You can fast from television. You can fast from the computer. You can fast from social media. You can fast from your phone. You can fast all kinds of ways. The focus of the fast is not the object that we give up. The focus of the fast is surrendering something that is important to us or something that we regularly do so that we might draw closer to God. That's what the fast is really all about. Number six, fasting does not necessarily have to be complete abstinence. Now, the classic fast is giving up food, all food for a period of time, only drinking water and eating no food for a certain number of days or for however long a person determines. That is at the far end of the spectrum on fasting. You may choose to give up one meal a day. You may choose to give up one meal a week. Uh, for a number of years, I had a concern that I, had, uh, that I fasted over, and physically I was unable to fast for long periods of time. My stomach won't allow me to do that. So I, my fast instead included having no food on Fridays. I didn't eat, dinner, eat food for Fridays uh, for a period of time. Uh, you might fast only by giving up certain foods. Uh, Daniel's fast in uh, Daniel 1.12, he gave up the king's meat and only ate fruit and vegetables for a period of time. So fasting, again, is giving up something so that we might attain some spiritual purpose. That's what the fast is all about. We talk to God, allow the Spirit of God to lead us as to how he wants us, how he wants us to do that. But anything we fast from is an acceptable fast. Also make note, fasting can be done individually. You may seek the support of somebody else and fast with a partner to stay accountable. I know of churches who do church-wide fasts. Those are all acceptable ways of doing it. 
God doesn't teach against any of that because the main focus of fasting in God's word is giving up something that is important to us for a specified period of time for a distinct spiritual purpose. That's what fasting is all about. Uh, number seven, uh, plan what you're going to do with a time where you normally will be involved with, with, with whatever it is uh, you're fasting from. Design a plan of activity to replace whatever you're surrendering during that time of your fast. A Bible study, prayer, meditation on God's word, they can all take the place of whatever you're not doing during that period of time. Uh, during my Friday fast when I was doing that, uh, when I wasn't eating, whenever I had a hunger pain, I'd pray about the concern God had placed upon my heart. So that was kind of a way that God reminded me to be praying about the concern that I had. I'll go to Isaiah chapter 58. Back to the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 58. In Isaiah, God gives some very specific instruction about fasting. And you'll find that in Isaiah chapter 58, uh, verse 6. Isaiah 58, verse 6, God says this, Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of the wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal with thy bread to the hungry? And that thy, thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, whom thou seest, uh, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from, from thine own flesh. What's he saying? He said, I want you to fill your time, your fasting time, with productive things that are focused on the needs of somebody else. So as we fast, the fast is not only self-focused, although it is, as we try to draw closer spiritually to the Lord, that's part of it. But according to Isaiah 58 here, it, also, it is also other-focused. As we use the time we would have been involved with doing whatever it is we would have been doing, use that time instead to provide help to somebody else, whatever that help might be, and make that part of the idea of the fast. So it's a spiritual fast, but it's not just spiritual. It's also active in helping somebody else during that time. By the way, uh, we may lose weight as a result of the fast. That is not the purpose of a spiritual fast. <laughs> Be very careful about that. Some folks will fast and say this is a spiritual fast. They're just trying to lose 10 pounds. Uh, you've missed the point if that's the case because now we're back focused on our own needs as opposed to our own fleshly needs, I should say, as opposed to some spiritual need. Uh, number eight, we can expect two things if we fast. First of all, we can expect to hear God's voice more clearly. As we clear out the noise of whatever it is we're giving up and fasting from, and as we dedicate ourselves spiritually to the Lord, He's going to honor that by speaking to us in ways where we can't miss it, by either through his word or through other people, other believers, or through events that come into our lives. But one way or another, God's going to speak to you more clearly as a result of, of the fast that you're doing. Because we are dedicating ourselves to seeking him, we'll be more receptive to him when he speaks because we have cleared out some stuff out of our lives that may get in the way of that. I want you to go to the book of Daniel, if you would. I mentioned Daniel's fast. Go to Daniel chapter uh, 10. Daniel chapter 10. There's a very interesting thing that Daniel says here as he talks about this fasting that I think it would be good for us to note, uh, take note of. So Daniel chapter 10. I'll look at verse 1. He says that in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was also Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. 
uh, and verse 4, and in the 4 and 20th day of this first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hedekel, and then he talks about this vision that he saw. So what happened is this. Daniel was absent from food, certain foods, for three weeks. At the end of that time, as David, uh, Daniel participated in that fast, God revealed himself to Daniel and revealed some message to him. Now, of course, we, God speaks to us differently today than he did back then. But the fact is, uh, the revelation will come. God will speak to you. You'll hear something from him because you have cleared out something which might be in the way of God speaking to you. And certainly your dedication and fasting, God will honor. So the first thing to expect is that you will hear from God more clearly. Number two, expect spiritual opposition. If you choose to fast, expect spiritual opposition. Whenever you get serious with the Lord, whenever you get serious about the Lord, in whatever way you do that, be guaranteed Satan's going to show up. Whether that be a church or an individual, when you try to do something for God and get serious with him, uh, Satan's going to try to get you off track. So when this whole thing about uh, uh, fasting shows up, if you choose to begin a food fast, I can almost guarantee you if you work somewhere, that's going to be the day somebody decides to bring donuts to work. <laughs> It's just how it works. That's how Satan does his thing, to try and tempt you out of the seriousness that you've committed yourself to. I'm not going to have you turn there, but in Matthew chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, uh, Satan tempts Jesus Christ after he fasts. So as Jesus is fasting, here comes Satan along, feeling like Jesus Christ is weak at that time, and begins to oppose him. So if you choose to fast, don't be surprised if things start to go a little south for you. Uh, Satan's not going to leave you alone because he does not want you serious with the Lord. Number nine, uh, and I just threw this one in, use common sense if you attempt a food fast. And by that I mean, make sure you're physically able to do what you're attempting to do. I know God can handle whatever comes. I know we always trust him for all things. I get all that. But I also know God gives us discernment and God gives us common sense. So don't attempt something that you're not physically able to do. As I said, I can't do a long fast. My stomach will not allow me to do it. My stomach will eat itself from the inside out if I try to do that. So I just can't do it. So I'll, t I'll try more uh, individual fasts that aren't quite so long. Uh, if you need to, check with a doctor before you attempt something extreme, like, like an extreme sort of a fast, just to make sure you're physically able to do that. So all that said, again, that is a quick overview of fasting. I get it. But what I do want to say to you is this. God expects us to fast. He doesn't command us to fast, but he expects us to do that. And God tells us there are great benefits that come from doing that. And so it's my opinion, based upon all we've looked at tonight, that you will see greater power in your personal life, and we'll see greater power in our church if we choose to get serious with God uh, and get serious to the point of setting something aside that is important to us for the purpose of seeing God work in our lives. Now, with all that said, any comment you might have about that, something you'd like to add to that, or maybe an experience you've had with fasting that you'd like to share with us, or we're open to that if you'd like. Anybody? Okay, then. Just want to give you the opportunity. Go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And by the way, check those verses out that are on that sheet. I can go, didn't go through all of them, but they will give you a, a, a more full view of what that fasting is all about if you check those verses out. James chapter 2. I, I made this comment to you last week when I uh, started this, this, our, our message for the week. You're going to hear, be hearing this quite a bit more as we go through this study. And I hope you'll hear it enough that it'll make an impact on you and you'll begin to respond to others in a different way as a result. Uh, Jesus Christ, or God, God says this. Your religion, as the word that James uses there, your salvation, your commitment to Jesus Christ is going to be evidenced by how you treat the next stranger that walks through that back door. 
That's how it's going to be evidence. We had visitors here on Sunday. How did you respond to those visitors? Did you say anything to them? Did you talk to them at all? Did you greet them? What did you do? Our salvation, our commitment to Jesus Christ is not demonstrated practically by how much we talk about it. (laughs) Rather, it's demonstrated by what we do with it. It's not demonstrated by how many verses we know, how many verses we quote, how many commentaries we know, how many historical books we've read. That is not what our commitment to Jesus Christ is all about. Our commitment to Jesus Christ is shown in what we do, in our behavior, how we react, how we respond. It is shown by how we react to people who walk into this place. It is shown by the amount of respect that we show that person who walks in here, whether they're just well, dressed well, and obviously well off, or they come in possessing nothing more than the clothes on their backs. Either way, our commitment to Jesus Christ is going to be shown by the kind of respect we show to that person. When somebody walks in this place, how do you respond to them? Your religion is shown by that, uh, by your commitment to Jesus Christ is shown by how you respond. God is impressed, not impressed with what we profess. God is impressed with how we live out our profession. You can talk all you want to. You know, I believe God is very much a supporter of the idea that talk is cheap. I've known a lot of folks in my life who talked a great battle, talked great things about Jesus Christ. Their lives were horribly opposite. (laughs) But they talked a great battle about Jesus Christ. Be very careful about that. God not only wants you talking about it, and he does want you talking about it. But at the same time, he also wants you living it out. He wants people to see what Jesus Christ is all about, not just by how you say it, but how you live it. I'll tell you, it's easy to talk about it. It's tough to live it, especially in a world out there right now that is more and more opposed to what you're doing and what you think and what you believe. And so uh, it may be that uh, we have to do this in ways that that, uh, create complications for us, but God says live out your profession and especially live it out in front of those folks and be accepting of those folks who may have lived a little life a little rougher than you have, maybe a little more, have struggled a little bit more than you have, maybe aren't quite as well off as you are. Uh, be accepting of all folks, according to what uh, James says here. Our religion, according to what James says, is evident not in our words, but in our actions, in our, re- in, in our reactions to other people. Now, all this has been spurred on by how James started uh, chapter 2 here, the first four verses of James 2. And what we learned at the end of of last week's message, if we respect somebody based on outward appearance, if we uh, respect somebody based upon how they look or what they wear or how much jewelry they have and so forth and so on, what James says we're actually doing is judging their thoughts and judging their motives. We're not permitted to judge anybody's thoughts or anybody's motives on any basis but especially not on the basis of what they wear or how much money they have or how, many, how much jewelry they wear. Uh, so look at verse 4 again, if you would. I know we looked at this verse last week. There's one other thought I'd like to give you from verse 4. Uh, in fact, we probably ought to read verse 3. And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. He says, Are ye not then, look at the word, partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts. Take note of that word partial. That word implies division. It comes from the same root as partition, which implies a separation. Whenever I begin to make an assessment of people on my own basis, whenever I begin to judge people based upon my experiences or my opinions, the result is I create division. I separate people. I've separated people into certain groups. I've decided who is spiritual and who is not spiritual. I've decided who is holy and who is not holy based upon my own opinion and my own assessment. 
And I've done that without any scriptural principle for, as a basis of that assessment. I've created my own criteria and done the assessment totally on the basis of the, what I've developed for myself. Uh, did you know that I am not permitted to assess your spirituality based upon my personal convictions? <laughs> I can't look at you and say, because you do something I don't do, or because you don't do something that I do do, therefore, I'm more spiritual than you are, and you're not spiritual. I can't, permit, I can't assess your spirituality based upon something that God has said is wrong for me. And the reason for that is because God convicts each of us differently based upon what he knows about us. Now, there are some things I can't do that you can do because God knows where it would take me if I did them. And in the same way, there are some things you can't do that I can do because God knows where that would take you if you did them. Uh, so there, now there are spiritual principles and standards in this book. We all follow those. So we can't get out of those. If there's a spiritual principle in there that God specifically gives us, we, got, we all need to follow that spiritual principle. We can't negotiate on those. But there are some things that I may like to do and I may want to do, but I can't do them. Why? Because First Thessalonians 5.22 says, abstain from all appearance of evil. He doesn't say abstain from evil. He says abstain from all appearance of evil. If it looks evil, don't do it. If I do something and it has the potential to lead somebody else astray, has leads somebody else to a wrong perception or a wrong uh, conclusion about Jesus Christ, if it becomes a stumbling block to that person in some way or offends them in some way, I can't do it, even though it's totally right for me to do it, even though God has not convicted me personally about it. I can't do it because it's going to cause someone else to sin if I do, and I'm not allowed to do that. However, we cannot judge anybody's spirituality on the basis of our own convictions. And when I do, I have become partial according to what James says here. I create unnecessary division. And you know how God feels about people dividing his body. You're aware of that. Uh, the Bible is very clear about that. God doesn't care for that once bit. Not, once, not at all. So be very careful about that. Well, we know that God never wants any body of believers divided over non-biblical, non-doctrinal issues. Now, if there are doctrinal issues, that's a whole different story. But for something non-doctrinal, something that is a personal preference or a personal opinion or a personal conviction, God wants us to live with each other and abide with each other and get along with each other in spite of those things. Amen. Never create division, James says, based by, by assessing somebody's spirituality on external characteristics, how they appear. Now, with that all said, look at verse 5. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you, and draw you before the judgment seats. Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? Now look at those five verses. You've got a doctrinal difficulty here, folks, with those five verses. <laughs> because if we read those verses as they stand, and if we assume they apply to this age that we are in right now, what that verse, those verses tell us is the poor are the ones who go to heaven, and the rich are the ones who go to hell. And the only thing that makes a difference according to those three verses is whether or not they're rich or poor. Nothing else matters according to those verses. Now, Paul did not teach any of that in, in the writings to the church. And therefore, we understand these five, three verses are not written to the church age. They can't be because, number one, they violate Paul's writings. And number two, we know this is not true in this age. Uh, in fact, notice, if you would, he talks about them uh, gaining the kingdom because they're poor. We know that that's, that is not how anybody gains the kingdom. These verses apply not to this age. Rather, they apply to the time of the Great Tribulation, 
when the Jews and, and those folks are going to be working through uh, their salvation, working that salvation out by uh, loving God and by keeping his commandments. In that, that day, those who love him are going to gain the kingdom. And the love for God is shown by keeping the commandments. I'm not going to have you turn there, but in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, uh, there's a reference to the saved remnant of Jews that are going to make it through the tribulation. And that verse says, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make more with, war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any clearer, folks. The remnant in that day, in the day of the tribulation, are going to be saved by keeping the testimony of Jesus Christ and also by keeping the commandments. That's the two-part salvation during the tribulation. Not true in this day and age. It will be true in that time. And that's why when James talks here, he speaks about a person's love for Jesus Christ and connects that to the kingdom. The love for Jesus Christ during the tribulation time is going to be shown by the works they do for him. And those works are then going to be the basis for God accepting them and not rejecting them when the kingdom time comes. Uh, by the way, uh, every person that follows the commandments of God in the, in the tribulation is going to wind up poor. Just so you know, be glad you're not going through that. Because if you follow the commandments, if they follow the commandments of God in the tribulation, they're going to wind up poor. Uh, you know the verse as well, Revelation 13:16, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he have the mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. You're not going to buy or sell without the mark of the beast. Well, if that's the case, uh, if, you're not, if you're going to follow the commandments of God, you can't take the mark. Well, if you can't take the mark, you can't buy or sell. Well, if you can't buy or sell, you're going to be pretty poor after a while. <laughs> you're going to have some problems at some point in time. The only ones who are going to be rich in the tribulation are those who buy into the Antichrist system. And that's, again, why James says here uh, the, the rich are going to be the ones who are going to persecute you and so forth, because in that day, that's going to be the case. The rich are going to follow the Antichrist and persecute all those who choose not to. And by the way, every one of those rich folks in the tribulation who take the, the mark of the beast are going to wind up in hell, wind up in the lake of fire. So what James says here is not true for us doctrinally. Uh, and spiritually, that's, in this age, that is simply not the case. It is not automatic that if you're rich, you're going to heaven. Otherwise, I'd be out there trying to make all sorts of money to try and get rich so I could get to heaven. But that's not necessary in this age. Now, that being the case, we can't get anything doctrinally from those verses. However, we can make a spiritual application from them. Uh, here's what James is saying to us spiritually. The ones who are chosen by God are not necessarily the ones that the world would choose. When the world makes these choices, they make a, have a, based on a whole different criteria than what God does. Now, certainly there are those who have trusted Jesus Christ who are well off. And so for world, from the worldly point of view, those folks deserve to be in heaven because they're well off. They've, God has apparently, has apparently blessed them, and therefore uh, they get what God has for them. But I don't want you to take offense to this, folks. That's not most of us. <laughs> uh, most of, the God, of us are not in that boat. Uh, we really aren't the influence, uh, affluent type overall. I don't get the sense that any of us are like the, the affluent group. Uh, the world would automatically say about people like us that God could not have chosen you because you don't have enough. If God had chosen you, you'd be a whole lot more blessed than what you are, at least from the uh, material point of view. Uh, if you went to one of those swanky Hollywood parties where all the celebrities are, and if you showed up there, or if you showed up at the White House at one of those extravaganzas they have there, I don't want to burst your bubble. You wouldn't make it close to the front door. <laughs> you, wouldn't even, you wouldn't get inside the lobby. 
Uh, they would stop you long before you got inside because they based all of that on how you look and what you wear and what you possess. And yet when it comes to the inclusion in God's program, he seeks out people like you and I. He's not looking for the rich. I mean, the rich certainly can come. I'm not excluding them at all. What I'm saying is that's not what God looks for. That's not his concern. You know who God looks for? You know the verse well, Luke 19.10. He came to seek and save that which was what? Lost. That's who he's looking for. He's looking for the lost folks. Not looking for the rich folks. Not looking for those who think they have it all together and have a lot of material things here on this earth. That's not who he's looking for. He's looking for the lost. You see, the problem with rich folks, I guess you say, I shouldn't say it that way. The problem with those who focus on riches, who focus on, on celebrity, who focus on affluence, uh, the movers and the shakers, like the ones called them, the problem with those folks is uh, they get focused on that stuff and believe those things are enough to get them through. And the problem is they're not aware that they're lost. They think they have enough to buy their way into anything. Uh, you've heard those folks, they have enough money, they can buy their way into heaven. They'll just keep giving and giving to the church, and God will let them in based upon that, uh, on that basis. Uh, they feel like they're good enough. They feel like they've impressed God enough with what he has because people are impressed with them. Why wouldn't God be impressed with them? You see how the thing gets all turned around? Uh, they don't need anything more than what they have because they have enough. And what happens is they miss what God has for them as a result. They're self-sufficient. The worst thing for a person to be is self-sufficient. <laughs> the best thing for a person to be is God-sufficient, where God provides what you need, whatever that might be. And so uh, what happens is those who have a lot or those who focus on having a lot become the ones who berate and ridicule and exclude those whom God has chosen. You get rejected by the movers and the shakers because you don't have enough. And they're treating the poorly the very ones who are one day going to stand in judgment over them. Now, I'm not gloating about this. I really am not. But I do find it a little interesting that these folks who want to berate you and ridicule you and laugh at you and make life difficult for you are one day going to be standing out there and you're going to be judging them with Jesus Christ. It's going to be an amazing day, isn't it? When they look and see your face and say, wow, that's a guy I laughed at for 30 years <laughs> and now he's going to judge me. Difficult day. And that is based totally on what they have done with their, about their sin. That's not based on anything else. Nothing else matters. What have you done with Jesus Christ? So you see what God does. God gives us promises and God gives us heavenly riches and God gives us divine inheritance. And he gives that to the ones who on the surface, who just from the externals appear to be the least likely to get it. And that's who God gives it to, because all he cares about from a human, from a godly standpoint is what have you done with my son? Humans worry about all sorts of other things. That's all he cares about. And God withholds his blessing from those who on the surface seem like they deserve it the most. And God said, not because you don't know you're lost. <laughs> you got to know you're lost. Then I'll bless you. So what James does here in James, in these five, uh, verse 5 through 7, he makes it clear why having respect of people based on outside appearance is such a faulty proposition. Appearances in no way are indications of spirituality, and they'll lead to the wrong conclusion almost every time. And so, based on that, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, James now proclaims a law that we are to follow. Look at verse 8. If ye fulfill the royal law. James is now going to give to us a royal law. Now, let me just stop there for a second. There are two implications here with him calling this a royal law. Number one, it exceeds all other laws. 
If it's a royal law, it's above and beyond all the rest. There is no law greater than this one as James presents it. This law has preeminence over every other law. And second, it also implies this law came from royalty. It's a royal law. You see, this law was given to us by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, I'm sure you wouldn't. Some people would, not you folks. Uh, some people choose to exceed, to go past the speed limit. I know you would never do that, but some folks actually do that. The law says to go a certain speed, and there are, those, there are those folks out there who don't abide by that law. You might be surprised by that, but there really are people like that. Uh, there are those who, uh, uh, there are tax laws out there. There are some folks who choose not to pay their taxes or try to get around some taxes that they might need to pay. They find a way around those things. Uh, there are those out there who actually take what's not theirs and make it their own in all kinds of ways. Even though there's laws against that, they choose to do that. Every time that happens, if they get caught, they're going to pay a penalty for breaking those laws. Uh, here we have something that goes far beyond that. You have here a law that God has set. So when you break this law, you're not facing some policeman or some judge in a courtroom somewhere. You're facing God himself because it's his law. And he's the one who enforces the law because he's the one who set it up. So you see the consequences of, of breaking this law far exceed any consequence we might have for breaking some law down here. Because, again, this law came from God himself. And God sets the penalty for the breaking of the law. And there's no getting out of it once he sets it. Notice also, if you would, in verse 8, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. What has God done? God's put this law in writing. He wanted to make sure we didn't miss it. So he took this law and wrote it in black and white so we make sure that we get it. He took that law and put it in a book that he exalts above all his name. That law is in there. A book that never changes. A book we're required to follow. That's where you find that law. So the authority of the law that he's going to give to us is an authority based, is a law that's based on the fact that God decreed it and based on the fact that God has put this law into his infallible book. What's the law? It's listed there for you. If you fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as, thy, as thyself, ye do well. What's the law? The law is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There's the law, folks. The law, the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, whenever I see that in the scripture, I find it very interesting. God never qualifies that. He never gives proof that it's true. He always states what he states when he, st when he talks about that as though there's no justification or explanation needed. What am I saying? What I'm saying is deep down, uh, without exception, and some deeper than others, but deep down, every person born loves himself or loves herself. Amen. That's just human nature. Now, we have psychologists talking to us about self-esteem and self-concept and all those kinds of things, and there are issues. Those things are real, but those things are on the surface. If you get down to the core of a person, get down to, to, to where they are, every person loves themselves. That's just how it goes. That's not up for debate. God says it over and over again. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. He already assumes, he already knows you love yourself. He's just telling you to love somebody else that much also. So what's the royal law? The royal law is love everybody else like you love yourself. As much as you love yourself, love everybody else uh, that much as well. Now, we can't go into all the facets of this tonight, uh, but speaking uh, about this flesh, uh, this flesh, in this flesh, we love ourselves so much that our needs come before anybody else's. In the flesh now, in the flesh. 
if the flesh is totally operating, totally out in control, and the spirit has been set aside in this flesh, with this flesh in control, we love ourselves so much that our needs come before anybody else's needs. In the flesh, we love ourselves so much that our opinions are right and we exclude everybody else's opinion. In the flesh, we love ourselves so much that our survival in whatever realm we're speaking about is the only thing that's important. And you'll watch as people step on other people to get where they want to be, figuratively and literally. (laughs) That's because in the flesh, where I want to go is where I want to go. And if you're in my way, I'll push you aside or step over you to get there in our flesh because I love myself that much, you see. You get the idea. Now, we are to love others in that same way. Whatever we would do for ourselves, we do for other people instead. Uh, What that means is, and this is tough because the flesh reacts against this, uh, what this means is other people's needs come before my needs. Other people's opinions are more important than my opinion. Uh, Other people's survival is all that is important. My survival is set aside for the survival of somebody else in whatever realm we want to talk about. And we're to operate in such a way that those goals and many others that I could mention to you are met, even if mine aren't in the process. That's what the royal law is. That is God's royal law. So if I don't do that, if I don't make other people more important than myself, if I make my opinion more important than anybody else's opinion, if I choose to step over somebody to get where I want to go, I'm not at odds with those people around me. I'm at odds with the one who made the law. (laughs) I'm at odds with him. You see, people miss the point. Uh, They treat somebody else poorly and think, well, that person looks mad at me for a while. They'll get over it. And they might. But they have not just offended that person. They've offended him. God doesn't get over it. God deals with it. Unless you confess that sin and get right with God through it, uh, God's going to take care of that. There's a penalty to that. So every time I step over somebody to get where I want to go, anytime I show more love for myself than I do for somebody else, what I have done is I put my, myself in conflict with the one who made the law, and I'm going to suffer the penalty for that. And that's why some folks aren't doing real well sometimes, because they're not treating these other people as well as they treat themselves. And God makes sure that they are aware that's not how it works. And by the way, James has not qualified this law to only apply to saved people. He didn't make a, say, you know, uh, treat saved people like you treat yourself. Love saved people like you love yourself. He says, look at the verse again. He says, love thy neighbor. That neighbor may be lost. <laughs> he may not be saved. But you know what? He says, love thy neighbor as thyself. It applies to saved people in the local body of Christ. It applies to saved people in the universal body of Christ. And it also applies to every person you come in contact with. We are to love all people like we love ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean we have to agree with them. It doesn't mean we have to be friends with them. It doesn't mean we participate in what they're involved in. We just show them the same love we show to ourselves. Now, let me give you the example of that. We're going to close. Because Jesus Christ shows us how to do that. I could give you many examples of that. I'm going to give you one. Jesus Christ died on a cross. And Jesus Christ died on a cross because he valued paying for our sin more than he valued his own righteousness. Now, chew on that for about a thousand years and see if you can get a hold of it. (laughs) Uh, Jesus Christ died for you because he valued paying for your sin more than he valued his own righteousness, the righteousness of God. (laughs) It's not a stretch to say that settling my sin was more important to God, to Jesus Christ, than was his sinlessness. 
He chose to become sin for me, even though he didn't have to do that. Why did he do that? He did that because I needed somebody to pay that price. And God so loved the world. He loved his neighbor more than he loved himself. (laughs) His love for sinners exceeded his love for himself. Now, folks, that's the example. Now, you'll never do it the way he did it. Obviously, you can't do that. You're, You're not that good. But if we're to be like him, then our love has got to be in the same vein as that. No matter who God brings into your path, no matter how despicable and unlikable and repulsive they may be, love them more than you love yourself. That's required. That is the law that God has given to us. It's a royal law. And James says, you will do. Look at the last part of the verse. Thou, if you fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It's attached to a promise. Ye do well. In other words, it's the right thing to do. And God honors those who do the right thing. All right, let's stand.